I mean, you go into some deals and the key is to like parlay that into building relationships with other pure passive investors. And if you're not in any deals, you haven't seen any game. I mean, nobody really wants to talk with you. I mean, it's just not a good value exchange, quite frankly. You got to find high net worth accredited investors to build organic relationships with for the most part. So maybe even if you go into some bad deals, at least it's somewhat of a track record that this dude is serious. And, you know, especially being a younger person, right? And you're not quite accredited yet. You got to have experience. You got to bring something to the table and being in some deals is probably the best thing that you can. And if there, you go into a bad deal, that's what people want to know, right? That's the juicy gossip that people want to know, which who not to invest with, right? This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Lane Kaoka from Simple Passive Cashflow. Lane is a real estate investor based out of Hawaii who focuses on purchasing stabilized multifamily properties through syndications. In this episode, Lane will tell us the benefits of investing in commercial multifamily, as well as tips on how we should be spending our time networking for the best results. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave a five-star rating on the podcast. It'll really help us a lot. If you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or are looking for a 30-year fixed loan to scale your rental portfolio, you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. And now, on to the show. All right, Lane, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Currently, I own 4,200 rental properties, invest in apartment syndications, but I used to be a W-2 engineer, left that job a while back ago to do full-time real estate these days. But yeah. That's me in a nutshell. That's awesome. We have very similar backgrounds because I was actually an engineer as well. I was working as an electrical engineer at a defense contracting company. Yeah, we're all engineers because it's like, we're like the brokest, smartest professionals out there, right? Like, I mean, doctors, they get paid more, so they don't really have that pain point, right. that need. But yeah, as an engineer, I mean, you're never going to go hungry, but you sure as heck ain't going to get that financial independence. You know, when I was younger, I always thought, man, like engineering as a, like a, something to study in school was a lot harder than something like computer science. And I thought, oh, like if it's harder in school, that must mean we're going to get paid more when we graduate. Right. And it turns out all my friends that did CS are making way more money, especially here in the Bay area than we ever did as electrical engineers. Yeah. You're even, you're smarter than me. I couldn't even get into damn civil engineering. I had to go an industrial engineering route. I was like at the bottom tier. But I became an engineer because I just Googled way back when in 2000, before people used Google, I think, like, what's the highest pay out of college? Because I didn't want to go into anywhere college I need to. And that's an engineer. Yeah. So that's why I did it. That's awesome. So what were you doing? And then how did you get into real estate? Yeah. So I kind of walked this linear path, right? Of go to school, get a good job. I'm sure you understand it all, right? It's the whole Asian thing. So again, I studied hard, got an engineering degree, started working construction management. And then I started to save my money to buy a house to live in because that's what my mom and dad said to do. Right. And that's what everybody's, you know, kind of shooting for. But I saved up a couple years living in Seattle, bought a house to live in, but I was never home because I was working on the road all the time. And I was like, this is kind of dumb. So I just started to rent it out and called an old like landlord. And I 
think it was like $350,000 was the purchase price. This is back in 2009. The rents were $2,200 a month and the mortgage was $1,600. So for a young 20-something-year-old kid, that was a lot of beer money back then. And I was like, oh, shoot, if I keep doing this a few more times, I'll be able to be out of the rat race and quit my day job that I already didn't like way back then. That was kind of the start of it all. And from my understanding, you live in Hawaii now, right? This was a property in Seattle? Yeah, so I lived in Seattle. I went to school up there. I lived there for about a dozen years. But yeah, you know what? This stuff works, right? I mean, it took a while. I mean, 2009, I started. 2015, I had 11 rentals. And then I started to do the passive investing stuff. But I mean, after a while, this stuff grows exponentially. And yeah, passive income exceeds your daily expenses. And for me, it was moved to Hawaii. I got tired of being cold all the time in Seattle. And yeah, you know, you go where you want, right? I grew up here in Hawaii. I always wanted to move back and kind of help people out here. And yeah, I can't complain, man. Board shorts every day. That's awesome. So from my understanding, you don't do like small, like single family homes anymore, right? You do apartment syndications, like large multifamily apartments. How did you make that transition? Yeah, so for me, it was like around 2015, I had 11 of those like rental properties, five in Atlanta, four in Birmingham, one in Indianapolis, one in Pennsylvania. And it's cool, you know, you get a property manager to manage it for you, but I had maybe an addiction or two every year um, and maybe some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter, like, you know, like a windstorm makes a tree fall in your house or a flood in the basement or something like that. And it's no big deal, right? But like for 11 properties at a few hundred bucks of cash flow per property, it's just like, that's not enough, right? $3,000 passive. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm appreciative of that, right? But I don't know what American family can survive off three grand. You're gonna need three times that at least to get to that magical 10 grand per month. So now you're talking 30 houses. So now you're talking eviction every other month and some kind of big catastrophe every two, three weeks, right? Just numbers. And I started to look around and, you know, then I started to get around more accredited investors and most of them were investing as passive investors by diversifying in syndications through different partners, different geographic areas. I mean, it was just a better way to go. I mean, and tax benefits are a lot better. So around 2015, that's when you said I have like 50 grand or hundred grand and I don't want to buy another rental. I want to just put it with someone who does uh, syndications. Yeah. And that was like, you gotta have a pretty decent net worth, right? You can't be some broke guy doing syndications. If somebody does probably should run the other way. Cause they're probably desperate for cash. But I mean, my net worth at the time, I think it was like 600, 700 when I kind of consciously made the jump to the bigger stuff. I always say it's kind of like, you know, going to the NBA from college, right? Or making the jump. Um, and, you know, like when you own rental property and like the property appreciates and your tenants pay down your mortgage and your principal keeps building, which is great and which happens over time. But unfortunately, your return on equity goes way down. I mean, at the point where you're like 50% loan to value or 100% paid off, I mean, you're only making you know, single digits, low single digits return on equity. So, I mean, I think this is something that most investors don't do. They don't flex that return on equity and keep it high I'm using prudent cash, you know, prudent leverage and making sure they're cash flowing. But this is with single family homes, damn near 30 of them, it's impossible to do this. 
you're going to make your lender like super, super rich by doing this. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess in your case, you guys decided to move into multifamily and how did you even find someone to work with? Yeah. So I uh, went into one of these kind of like guru groups, paid a lot of money. And yeah, I mean, if you're serious about it, you pay up, right? Because how else are you going to find partners to do this stuff? Right. To do a lot of these deals. I mean, we kind of target stabilized assets. So 90% occupy more. So the reason why we do that is for the non-recourse debt component. These are like the golden ticket Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans, but they're big. But they only go to people who have had Fannie Mae Freddie Mac experience. Not a little single family homes, but you know, you've done 100, 200, 300 deals in the past. So then you're like, well, how do I get it if I don't have it? Well, bingo, you can't do it unless you have someone in your partnership to do it and you're in a group and you're in an ecosystem that has these people willing to do you a solid. So that was kind of my, I kind of got immersed in that sphere and I got my, what they call it, the Fanny Freddie card, the key KP status, key principal status to do that type of stuff. And yeah, like initially when I started, like me and my partner, we were like looking at some smaller properties between, you know, 20 to 60 units. And when we started to do that type of stuff, I mean, it just didn't make sense because we was just fighting with all these mom and pop investors under two to $3 million purchase price. And, you know, not to mention everybody knows that, well, everybody should know, like if you listen to podcasts, I'm sure you've heard this 10 times, you know, when you go around 60 units, you're getting that person inside the office all the time, like the on-site manager, which is cool. There's a presence at the, at the place and you have somebody reporting to you all the time and the economy is a scale, blah, 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 blah. Right. But what you really need is like a, get over 100 units to get that handyman to drive around in the little golf cart and knock out little work orders. So you're not paying 30 party like prices, like 600 bucks to replace something on the toilet on a third party um, fee. And then now we have like guys who are HVAC certified will knock out those type of things in the house. But yeah, that's why you really got to get above 100 units. If not, it's, it's just hard. Like all the properties that I've snowboarded with are all those smaller ones. So for your first deal, is that what you did? You went for like a hundred plus unit? First year, I just, I started to realize that I was just better off being passive investor because I lived in Seattle and I think a lot of guys live in California and I'll tell you guys, you're just not going to have a shot because what, who controls the deals? Well, you're not going to find it off market. All the gurus will tell you that ain't going to happen. If somebody owns a non a stabilized asset that's 90% occupied or more, they're not an idiot. They're not going to go sell it to some guy who's mailing them like this yellow letter. And we've got a lot of them. It's just stupid. It's going to go through a broker. And the broker's number one priority is to work with people who will close and who have has a past history of closing. So for somebody who lives 500 miles away or more that hasn't even visited the property, they're not going to get the deal pushed up to the top. The brokers are going to say these are a bunch of jokers, right? This offer, and I realized that, and I didn't really like talking to brokers. I like talking to other passive investors better, but yeah, I never really like meshed well with brokers. So I was like, well, you know, at least I know how to analyze properties. I know what to look for: reversion cap rates, occupancies, what to look for, what are the annual rent increases per year to kind of look out for so you're not kind of working with an overzealous operator. And I was like, well, cool, I'm going to be a passive investor. If I can just grow my money at 14 to 15% IAR, I'll be able to quit my day job while before i 40. And that was the goal at the time. That, that was why I kind of went down that passive LP route first. Mm-hmm. And I guess during that time, you got to see how other deals play out 
and you get to see like which operators and how they perform, right? You can see like, I like these guys better than I like these other guys. Yeah, I mean, you go into some deals and the key is to like parlay that into building relationships with other pure passive investors. And if you're not in any deals, you're not even skin in the game. I mean, nobody really wants to talk with you. I mean, it's just not a good value exchange, quite frankly. You got to find high net worth accredited investors to build organic relationships with for the most part. So maybe even if you go into some bad deals, at least it's somewhat of a track record that this dude is serious. And, you know, especially being a younger person, right? And you're not quite accredited yet. You got to have experience. You got to bring something to the table and being in some deals is probably the best thing that you can. And if they're, you go into a bad deal, that's what people want to know, right? That's the juicy gossip that people want to know, which who not to invest with, right? That's right. That makes for some great stories. Are you able to share any of those kind of stories? Like maybe not name specific people, but what was the scenario and if things went wrong? I mean, I think like the big thing is like, you, you know, this is real estate investing. It doesn't take a genius to do this type of stuff. And it's in comparison to like startup investing or like, you know, like a tech startup or whatever. From what I hear of those types of investors, because I'm in other more different industry masterminds, when you're vetting a deal, you're vetting the operator, right? 90, 99% of it is predicated on the operator. You can have a shitty idea, but if the operator is good, he'll push it through. Real estate's a little bit different. If you have a bad deal, they don't really care who you're working with. It's a bad deal. Like these deals kind of run itself. And when you think about it, a lot of the times you're getting a property management company, third party, that kind of just, you know, work the wheel. If the property, you can kind of underwrite the property with certain assumptions to kind of know if the deal is going to go or if not. Um, so the analogy is kind of like, well, certain planes, you know, like with the deal being like a plane, some planes leave with like half a tank of gas. Right, if they're underwriting irresponsibly. And that's the hard thing. A lot of the planes take off and you never see it, right? Nobody ever knows. They're called private placements for a reason. But yeah, I mean, some juicy gossip. I mean, I've been in some deals that didn't go so well right off the bat. And I've heard of some nightmare stories. It's usually the nightmares are always, if you're staying in a realm of like stabilized assets, you know, not those hairy deals that are 30, 50, 70% occupied or less. I mean, a monkey can kind of run it as most of the risk is like, if that monkey's dishonest, right? Like that's the risk. So, I mean, you hear all kinds of things out there, like, you know, people just stealing money, quite frankly. Hmm. And yeah, there's a lot, big PPM to kind of protect against it, but the you know, legal documents don't mean anything unless you're working with like, honest people. So I guess in the sense of you're dealing with stabilized assets that are already at 90% occupancy, where is the value add component to that if it's already you know good to go from day one? Yeah, so like, I mean, I would say a third of it is like the rents are kind of under market to begin with. So we'll target properties where there's nothing wrong with the property, right? It's stabilized. But there's usually some kind of distress or the seller has a problem, right? So the seller isn't, they, they, they want to sell it. They don't want to like get the highest price. And there's some like, it's not running on full tilt, right? There's things that you can fix. It's, you, when you walk in, you kind of know. You see the pool sign, and it's like hanging sidewards, or, I mean, you just, you, your rents are pushed a lot of times. You know, it might be on us. We kind of target $700 to $1,100 rents. And this is the workforce housing. So maybe $50 under market across the board that if you just 
kind of did a halfway decent job and kind of you know marketed the right way you would get 50 bucks right there and then you know sometimes there's opportunities to lower expensive but normally we're improving the asset we're the force appreciation model where we're going in changing out the flooring new appliances we do light value adds so value adds like a buzzword right everybody throws it around left and right but like i define like value add and anywhere from like a few thousand bucks up to maybe six seven thousand dollars of rehab so enough to change out the flooring new new countertops um new appliances but not really any big type of you know you're definitely not moving down walls, right? There's definitely some exterior improvements in there too, but that enough money is to bump the rents up maybe 50, 100 bucks in addition to under, already under market rents. So that's kind of the goal, right? 100 to 150 bucks lift on units is, mm. is kind of the value add. But that's, you know, these are commercial assets. So if you increase the NOI and you divide it by the cap rate, that's the amount of money you've created. I mean, it's kind of like a slow flip, but you get cash flow in the interim in case a recession happens or something bad happens. Is the plan to then do like a giant refi afterwards to get all your capital back? Or are you trying to sell the properties after like seven or eight years? Multiple strategies, right? I mean, I think that's the beauty of it. You can go any way on it. We have a couple properties in Mississippi that maybe we're not super bullish on the area anymore. So whenever most of the units are rehab, our plan is to just sell it. And which is why we elected not to do a cost segregation on those assets because the cost segregation, rule of thumb is it kind of makes sense after if you hold a deal longer than three, four years. But, you know, like, you know, we like markets like Huntsville or Houston where, I mean, at, at this point, right, things can happen, right? Say we get three years into the future and we rehab most of the units, maybe we rate refinance and you know give back investors money tax free, and everybody likes that, right? Because it's tax free money, and then you continue to hold on to your equity position until the asset is ultimately disposed of, which could be not five years, but seven years after the start, or even ten years. It could be a legacy hold, mm-hmm. and you never have to pay back the taxes if you never exit out of it. It depends, right? Yeah. Have you guys have any issues with COVID, especially with like multifamily housing uh, for workforce labor? Not really. I don't want to say that too loud, but I mean, normally we collect 97% of the rents, like collections. So out of a hundred people, you're always going to have a few deadbeats between A class and B class. But I mean, through COVID, maybe through the worst of it was like April and May, where it dipped into the mid nineties on average. Some came a little worse. I think the worst of it was like, some of the class C stuff struggles in pandemics. I didn't know this, it just turns out that way. Maybe it went down into like the 80s and the worst, but some other properties, like some of our Huntsville stuff outperformed collections during COVID. Nice. I mean, I think I'm lucky, right? Like, I mean, this is why we picked this stuff, right? It does pretty damn well in tough times. People need a place to live and there needs to be you know, good workforce housing for people. Mm-hmm. What is your current involvement in all this since you live in Hawaii and like you said, you don't really like talking to brokers? Yeah, so I'm not on the acquisition side. I don't like talking to brokers. So my job is to play asset manager, right? Property managers are at the property, boots on the ground. But my job is to kind of audit financials, business development, and also, you know, like try and like, we kind of have the weekly calls with property managers. We're like, all right, what's coming through the hopper? It's ultimately just a big project management thing. Just like when I was at my day job, 
as a construction manager, right? What's the next thing on the docket? You know, you're not the person with the technical expertise to go on and do it, nor are you the person, the workforce labor to do it. But our role as asset managers is to project manage this thing and make sure that the construction gets done. And we kind of make little pivots here, there. Maybe we want to like, the way the deal is going, maybe we want to prioritize cash flow, or maybe things are going are super good. And we're like, screw the cash flow. Let's just get, this is bummer us these units, right? Let's turn them and burn them and get the higher rents. At the end of the day, it's kind of make, making investors happy. And it's kind of, when you got so many investors, it's hard to make people happy. But you know, the, generally the business plan is to get through the units, right? Mm-hmm. But you can kind of sacrifice cash flow to get there. But investors want both, some want both. As me as a passive investor, I'm like, look, man, I gave you my money. Yeah, it'd be nice to get cash flow and it, yeah, it might be part of the performa, but I'm in it for the long term. I'm in it for the equity multiple at the end of whatever, five years. Right? So that's what we mostly manage to manage cash reserves, work draw requests with the bank, get reimbursed, stuff like that. Is it just you working with multiple different syndication groups or are you part of just one group that does all of these I am part of a few groups is how I do it. So I get married and we kind of work the deals. In the beginning, I would kind of be all over the place. But after something is not going too well, I decided. And you, you start to realize who actually performs. I guess more importantly, like who I'd rather interact with, right? I mean, life's short. You choose after a while. I mean, that's what financial freedom does, right? You get to choose who you want to interact with and do business with. Because you've got to work the deal. you got to work together to manage the asset. So it's, I mean, you kind of choose people that kind of have similar styles and you can get along with and also work well, complementary skill sets too. How are you even meeting these people and kind of, you know, getting onto their team in the first place? We started at the ground zero together. So we trust each other. Got it. So it's kind of like you, you all met through like networking events, maybe conferences. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, I mean, today I don't really go to, you know, real estate conferences anymore because it is a bunch of, you know, new people getting started. But that's cool, right? I mean, that's where, you know, if you go to somebody on the second, third rung, they're just not interested. They don't know you, right? It's a waste of time. And this is why we pay like $25,000 to join different various masterminds these days, right? Because it's just the filtering process is important to us. And we want to we want to interact with people who at least have successful businesses. Hmm. That makes sense. I actually know a really big flipper here in the Bay Area, and he proudly stated that he spent $85,000 to join you know, one of those masterminds because he wanted to meet all the other investors who could afford $85,000 for a mastermind. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was crazy, man. I mean, I grew up super cheap, never buy soft drinks when you go to a restaurant. I didn't even know you could. My parents told me they, they never had them. But like, yeah, I mean, if you would tell me like spending like that much money on a mastermind, I would have said you're crazy. But today I'm like, yeah, like that's what we do. I mean, cause you go there and you meet one or two people and, and some idea or some type of you know, business deal comes together. I mean, that more than pays for the damn thing for years. And my wife knows, I mean, my wife thinks I'm still crazy, but when she sees a couple of them come to Hawaii and She's, she sees the synergy. I mean, she's like, I get it. I don't know what y'all are doing or how much money that made, but I, I mean, she's like, yeah, it's a different breed. And when you can like get in an environment with people of the same level and you don't have to worry about who some fake it to your make it shyster type of guy, because there's a lot of guys like this, 
I mean, you know, real estate's all about marketing, right? Everybody puts on a nice suit that they they buy and their one suit that they have, right? Because it's cold and nobody buys any clothes anymore. But like, yeah, everybody looks good, right? But who is the real people, right? You got to build your network around you to kind of, you know, build that, that data set. That makes sense. Like you said, in the beginning, it must be really hard. So how do you go about like sussing out who is like good and who is not? A long time ago, I would go to just random events. I would definitely not go to like wholesaler and flipper type of arenas because a lot of those guys don't have money because I was the buy and hold guy out of state, right? So going to the local area for me just did, didn't do it. And I don't want to be prejudiced against people who don't have money, but look, I mean, if you don't have money, I mean, you just can't do business. I mean, and this is why I don't really like working with, you know, guys who don't have a million dollar net worth and above. They can be vendors, don't get me wrong, but not partners because I feel like they're going to sell me out for 50 grand, which is a lot of money to them, as opposed to kind of keeping the relationship strong. But yeah, I, you know, if you're going out to all these types of things, you got to start somewhere, right? But maybe just sometimes like you hear that saying where it's like, you know, the more times you say no, the better things get, you know, or high end people say no most of the time. But when you're beginning, you got to say yes a lot, but maybe just at least like kind of filter things. Like, is that event going to have the people that I want to interact with? Or maybe more refined, like, is this person, should I waste 40 minutes shooting whatever with him, having a beer? Or should I kind of quickly filter and move on, hmm. right? And I think that this sub kind of mindset seems really messed up. But I think you have to do it when you're on kind of like the beginner level because you don't know who to trust out there. But like once you find your tribe, your people of similar pedigree, similar network, similar goals, and and also hopefully you can start to see a track record, right? They own properties, right? They're doing what you want to do. Then you stay close to them. You add value to them. This is where you start to build your close circle. And as I started to kind of get underneath like the local RIAs or the free stuff online, you start to have these people that you trust and they kind of rise above you because they're likely higher performers than the rest. And then those are the people that you kind of rely on, like, yeah, you know, this Sean guy, is this guy real or what, you know? Yeah. I think that's one mistake I see a lot of people, they float around the room, they pass out a lot of cards, but they never like, they never target and identify the people that they need to go deeper in with. So either you go deep with the wrong people or you don't go deep at all. Those are the two mistakes, I guess. Makes sense. So now I guess you have your pretty tight knit group. Do you guys like do Zoom chats on like a monthly basis or something like that? No, not really. I mean, I don't, I don't got time for that type of stuff, right? Like, I think that is valuable for some people, right? But I don't know, this is my mindset. I'm more of like kind of kick butt on your own and maybe you'll see the guy once a year, mm -hmm. right? So what would you say takes up most of your time nowadays? A lot of stuff, uh, just going through analyzing deals. Yeah, just deals is taking up a lot of time. <laughs> you mean like just analyzing all the deals that get sent to your desk and you gotta make sure that they're good and? Yeah, investor reports, just a lot of deals we got going on. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of starting at this whole entrepreneur journey, right? Like this is, I didn't have this at my W2 job. Whenever the W2 job is over, it's done, right? But. As an entrepreneur, there's always more and more and more. I mean, it's the Parkinson's law. Whatever time you had gets filled up. 
plus mm-hmm. 20-30%. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're busy. I mean, being busy means you're doing more and being more productive, right? You just hope so, right? Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure I have a lot to learn with like, you know, hiring staff, bringing people on, uh, outsourcing things. Because right now, I mean, I just have like some help, but I mean, for the most part, it's kind of me doing the thing. And a lot of times I find myself doing $20 an hour type of work. Let's see. Uh, what would you say is like the plan going forward with you and your business? Keep picking up deals that cash flow, right? I mean, it's just like back in 2012 to 2015, you know, like if people recall, like the market was kind of coming up like crazy. And then it came up and came up and came up, came up, came up again, right? And I was like, well, should I be doing this? You know, but if to me, if you're investing for cash flow and good areas, I don't know how you can go wrong. I mean, you got to be in the game, especially if your net worth is under one or two million dollars. You can't just sit there and, and quote quotes from like all the perma bearers out there that are just trying to be, sell people gold. Um, you got to be in there because if you're not in there, you don't start to build relationships. You don't get the deal flow and you're just not growing your money. Mm-hmm. This game is all about return on equity. And the more money that you have in those deals, the more money you can make and more your net worth grows. I mean, that's the whole point of this thing. Makes sense. So I feel like if I can just go into deals, I mean, in the beginning, it's a little shaky as the deals restabilize as you take over. But, you know, after three to six months, it gets stabilized and you kind of move on. You take the next one down and each time it's like a cash flowing deal. So it's kind of like climbing a mountain, right? I mean, you could fall off, but it's kind of like, I don't know, I'm not a mountain climber. You, you throw that thing in the rock and it stays, you know, and you kind of tie off and you go up and you climb on the next one. Mm-hmm. So you kind of limit your, I think you're a stock guy, right? You, like the sunk loss things or like the puts, or, I don't know, I don't know. But like with cash flow, I feel like how can it go wrong, right? I mean, in bad times, like maybe rents still go down a little bit, but you hold on to the property, right? Where people who got in trouble last time, they were all like flipping houses for appreciation, they didn't have multiple exit strategies. Yep. And probably over leveraged too, so they can't make their payments. If you're in a situation where your rents, your cash flow can pay for your mortgage and then some, then like you said, you should be good. Yeah, I mean, just think about like a single family home that rents for 900 bucks a month, right? Like you should be cash flowing at least a couple hundred bucks after property management, maintenance, repairs, vacancy, and CapEx. Right. So there should be at least a couple hundred bucks of, of um, buffer there. So tough times happen, you have a vacancy, and it kind of goes stale on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever they're using the market at, just drop the rents at 50 bucks. And people are going to be lining up around the block. I mean, that's like, you're in the Bay Area. That's like, if they cut your rents by $200, you'd be like, heck yeah, that's the same percentage for them, right. 50 bucks. And as long as you're still able to cash flow and they're paying down your mortgage and things are still good, mm-hmm. your net worth is still going up. So I know that you said that, I guess to date, COVID hasn't really impacted you guys or your portfolio so far, but do you guys have any like, considerations with what you're gonna do going forward as far as it's like, you know, being like more aware or more cautious is concerned? I think if anything, COVID has sort of like vindicated the, this whole idea of going into secondary and tertiary markets, not for cap, not for appreciation and cash flow, like 1% rent to value ratio properties to your cash flow. And also going into red states where you don't, you're not in the socialist Republic of California and also in emerging markets, right? I mean, it's no secret that 
people are getting the heck out of California, Boston, New York, and they're going to places like Texas. I mean, it's been like that since 2012. I mean, it should be no secret. In fact, I don't know if you can even make deals work in Dallas too much anymore these days because it's been like that since forever. But I mean, if you look at it from a very high level, if you're not looking at the numbers on the deal and you're just picking numbers on the roulette wheel, I mean, if you're going with like states like Texas, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, I would take those four guys as opposed to other 45 states in a heartbeat. Because mm-hmm. you've got to put your money in. you got to have skin in the game. If not, you're going to play the game to lose. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who are scared and they sit on the sidelines for a long time. And then, like you said, because they didn't invest, they lost all those gains from those past few years. Yeah. I mean, we're always potentially sitting on the next best bull cycle for six to 18 months and you sat behind. Right. So I take the approach of dollar cost averaging into cash flowing deals. I don't know if it's going to go down. I don't know if in that rock climbing analogy, I'm going to fall off, but I'm going to keep kind of tying off so that I can fail. Right. If that the next deal I go into, things get really bad in the economy. Well, what do I do? Well, I continue the cash flow. I just use the CapEx money to bolster cash reserves, hold down the fort and keep cash flowing and just ride it out. Mm-hmm. So what does a typical deal look like to you in terms of like unit size, purchase price, all that stuff? Most secondary tertiary markets and those kind of red states is shooting for a hundred units or more. So maybe under 350 units. When you go over 350 units, you start to get these like huge mega plexes. Those are more institutional type of assets. They kind of trade at a, just, it just don't make sense. I mean, I don't know how like buying a $200,000 property or per unit, we, we break it down by per unit a lot of times. I don't know how you can make a $200,000 per unit property work when the rents are 1600. I mean, people who own rental properties should know that it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you might have some other income in there, make, bolstering up the income. But to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. That's more of an appreciation play, more forced appreciation play. You know, I want to see the rents. I want to see the per unit price somewhere between like $55,000 to $80,000 around there. And that's kind of like your class B, class C, 700 bucks to $1,000 a month rent. Okay, that makes sense. And then hopefully you can increase that by another 200 or $300 per month, right? 200, $300, that might be a little overzealous, right? Okay. I'm sure. I mean, it happens. And it's like, yeah, we got it. I mean, you got one like that. But more realistically, I mean, you just want a really good solid 100, 150 buck increase. Okay. Right? Because if you bump the rents up 20%, you're going to have, a, you better underwrite a lot of vacancy because people are going to be like, screw you, we're out of here. Or they can't even afford it. You know, you want to improve the community, but you also want to retain some of the good tenants by doing that. Or when you do that, you're just going to go through massive vacancy if you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it can, then it can, but I just think 200 bucks is a lot. Okay. Good to know for reference. You know, I don't do multifamily, so I don't know like what you guys target when it comes to like increasing rents and doing your value adds. I mean, it's just a little overzealous, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, 200 bucks is a big increase, right? Right, especially for those guys, they just can't afford that type of bump. And do you usually keep the same tenants in place after you model it, or do you kind of get new tenants in? Most times you keep the existing ones and you definitely get rid of 
say at least the 20% duds in there, right? Because you're trying to clean house with shady characters, for sure. And that's what in the beginning, that's the restabilization portion of the business plan. You're trying to shake out these people, you know, the skeletons in the closet, right? There's always a reason why the seller sells. And likely their books aren't super clean. And likely this person and that person, that person is some kind of legacy, had some kind of maybe side deal or something. There's always something like that. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, you want to try and retain, you already know what kind of tenancies are because as the property managers come in, that's where they live and that's where they work. And they start to know all these people personally and they know Rhonda and they know like Barry, you know, Barry goes to work every day at four o'clock, whatever. They know who are the good folks in there that are going to help you basis of a good community where and they know who is likely selling drugs right they know who has five cats for example and they're going to try and you know hey my rent's going up you're going to stay or what oh no you're not okay right i mean at the end of the day you're trying to improve the community for the greater good right utilitarianism most people that live there, they want a good solid community and they would love it if like, you know, some of these people would just move out. And for a lot of these people, it's like, if you bump the rents up 50 bucks, they're out. It's like, cool, don't let the door hit you when you're going out. And then you're detracting. This is where like, you're really trying to get that value add. And this is why the deals take a little long, right? In theory, like you have your natural turnover in the first couple of years, you get you know, the 80, 20, you're going to go through the most of the units and the natural turnover because most tenants kind of come in and out in a couple of years, right? I think apartment tenants are a little bit more transitory than single family home tenants. So that's why you're gonna go through most of the tenants in the first couple of years. But most deals, at least the way we try and underwrite them are kind of on a conservative five year, just to give us a few more years of flush in there, um, just in case things go longer and to stabilize the P&Ls. Because that stabilized P&Ls is what ultimately sells the property. You might have already gotten through the whole business plan in two and a half years, but those P&Ls need to kind of season. But then that's where you kind of start to work on that community, right? Initially, you start to do the interior improvements first because people will pay 50 bucks for the new sink, the new refrigerator. But they may or may not pay 25, 50 bucks more if you put in a new dog park outside or a new barbecue pit, right? That stuff comes later. So it's more, that's kind of like green finishing a cow. Right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you get through all the interior and you're kind of doing the exterior as your guys has more time to do it. But ultimately you want to ideally start with the exterior at the end to kind of finish this thing up. And then, but that's where like, you know, if you've done everything, you've improved the community. I mean, that, that's just when rents kind of just skyrocket from there. That's awesome. And then how long do you need to season that P&L before you can do your exit and they're like solid in the count. That depends on the buyer, right? Because if the buyer is going after agency financing, they're probably going to want a couple of years. Mm. Right? And depends on what where we are. Like you take a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lender, they're kind of all over the place. It changes based on COVID, right? They may want to see, I mean, they're not going to take a T12, a trailing a T6 and be like, okay, cool. We'll go off that. These banks aren't idiots. They're going to want to see the story and kind of run off the story. Are you guys getting permanent financing when you guys buy properties or is there some kind of like bridge loan that you guys get? Yeah, we like to go in with the agency debt on the get-go. I know a lot of guys, they like to do the bridge up front, but 
I think in a certain situation, like I think that's how you juice returns artificially on paper. If you're trying to hit a certain number for your passive investors, but I just think it's risky. You kind of play with the devil when you do that. But in a certain situation, like if you have severely under market rents, where maybe instead of like I was saying, like well, typically it's like fifty bucks under market, but maybe it's like hundred bucks or hundred fifty bucks under market, it, the seller's just a complete idiot and mismanaging it and not pushing rents. Well, maybe a strategy would be to do a bridge, get that really low hanging fruit. You know, maybe stabilize it for six months to 18 months, then get the long-term agency financing on top of that, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of like throw this item up in there and catch it in a way, right? And put the long-term financing on there. But I don't know, I mean, you're not finding deals like that. Like that doesn't happen, you know? Yeah, makes sense. And you don't have any worries about like the prepayment penalties that come with agency financing? You do your job right and you underwrite the right way and you use the right reversion cap rate, you're going to blow that money out of the water. You're going to blow the deal out of the water. You're not going to care about no prepayment penalty. Okay, good to know. And everybody asks like, oh, did you figure out if you were going to do the prepayment? Like, no, if we did everything the right way, we're going to blow this thing out of the water. It's not going to even matter. If not, we'll just hold. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you got to kind of look at, I mean, it's just, I'm a lot more conservative underwriter than most, but I don't think you should really under, it's just not part of the, this is not how you underwrite. And you don't really underwrite with a prepayment sale at year three. You just run it out to year five or whenever the conservative exit is. Mm -hmm. All right, solid answer. We're running out of time now, but I do know you have some other thought leadership platforms like your podcast. I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about your show or if you have any other platforms like that. I guess, well, depending where people are, people are still doing single family homes. My podcast started, I was talking about single family home turnkeys back in the day, how to buy it remotely. So those were like the first dozen podcasts. But when I started my podcast back in 2016, that's what I was kind of going to more of a credit investor. So lately it's been more about syndication investing, infinite banking, you know, tax, especially taxes. Taxes is the biggest thing, right? Like. These deals, they do cost segregations and unlock passive activity losses. You use passive activity losses to offset your passive income. And if you're able to employ a rep status, real estate professional status and taxes, now you use that to offset your W-2 ordinary income, which just makes you keep more money at the end of the day. And then when you have more money, you create this harmonious cycle where you put it into more deals and you have a lot of overflow that maybe you put into infinite banking and you kind of churn that a little bit. And as, I mean, I kind of realized that the wealthy do things very differently than our parents taught us. And the truth is, it's not that hard. It's kind of simple mm-hmm. to do. Is there anything that kind of you found from a guest that was you know, particularly insightful that you kind of carry with you to this day? Not really. I mean, it's all like one-on-one conversation. I mean, the stuff changes a lot, right? Congress or I don't know, president changes every, like it seems like every two years, right? There's always some kind of tax change. This is why you got to build your network with high network people who are doing this stuff because it's not going to come from some thought leader. It's going to come from the grassroots, from the mastermind of peers, I think. Awesome. That's where the best ideas come from. So Lane, where can people find you? They can go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com and then simplepassivecashflow is the podcast. Awesome. Uh, do you have any last minute tips for our listeners before we end our show today? What is the listener doing right now? Most of our listeners are going to be Bay Area professionals, probably some, doing something in tech. 
and they're probably just getting started with their real estate investing journey and not sure whether to you know, buy their home here in the Bay Area, buy a single family property out of state, or maybe even do passive syndications. Yeah, so if you're on a credit investor, your net worth is higher than half a million, I would say go try and look into syndications as soon as possible. If you're just starting out, you're just some bro like how I was back in 2009, get some single family homes out of state. Don't definitely don't do it locally. I mean, you're just too much dumb money. I mean, this is, I lived in Seattle around 2012. I went to all these like auction things and I looked around the room and it's just a bunch of older Microsoft guys who didn't have a clue what they were doing. Just a bunch of dumb money. And I was like, this is, I don't want to be in this room. This is the wrong room. I need to get out of state, go invest for cash flow, which is the not so beaten path. And I think, yeah, don't buy your house to live in. If you're, I live here in Hawaii, I rent. Awesome. All right, Lane. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And this has been an amazing interview. Thanks, John. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.